All right, to get us started, let me just read these verses. This is the Thanksgiving portion of the letter of the book of Philippians. Paul is writing a church in the city of Philippi, and he's just getting started. And in his letter, he's thanking God for them. So let's look at it, verses 3 and following. He said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all. With the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, here's what we note. We note in these verses that Paul really, really, really likes this church. Did you see that? You see how much he loves them? He's writing them a letter. He's writing this church that he planted 10 years before. And he's saying, I really like you. He's like, you're very memorable to me. And when I pray for you, I pray with what? I pray with joy. Now. We, we all know we've prayed for people. We've prayed for lots of different people in our life. I'm sure you have too. And not everybody you pray for, you're praying with joy about them. True or false? That's true. That's right. Uh, sometimes you've got to pray for an enemy or you've got to pray for, you know, a family member that's gone wayward. Or sometimes you've got to pray for your kids. And though you love them, when you're praying for them, it's not with joy. It's with, you know, I hope they get it together or whatever. But obviously, with this church in Philippi, note that Paul is saying, when I think about you and when I pray for you, I pray with joy. He goes on to say, I have the affection of Jesus Christ for you. I yearn for you. And arguably, this is one of the warmest letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. And he wrote 13 out of the 27 books in the New Testament And so that's saying something to say this is one of the most warmest, affectionate. He is fired up about the church in Philippi. Now, don't confuse this for piety. Don't confuse this for religion. Don't confuse this. Well, that's the way he's supposed to talk. He's an apostle. He has a halo. He floats on air. You know, don't confuse this because if you turn in your Bibles just to Galatians chapter 1, don't do that, but you can read the opening section to that church that he wrote and the tone there is not like, I think of you and I love you and I'm joyful about you. The tone in the book of Galatians is, you people need to get it together. But in Philippians Chapter 1, he's like, man, you guys are awesome. I am fired up about you. Now listen, when we think about a church that we're a part of, we want to be happy when we're thinking about our church, right? I mean, we don't want to be praying about Cross Point Church and go, oh, Lord Jesus, God help us. We are so jacked up, I can barely take it anymore. You know what I mean? 
when you think about Cross Point Church in your prayers, you want to be praying for Cross Point with joy. You want to be like, Lord, I am fired up about my church. I love my church. I love my church. I'm excited about my church. My church is memorable. My church is, is worthy of my affection and my love. I love my church. And so the question is, why is Paul so fired up about this church in Philippi? Why is it that, uh, that when he thinks of them, he thinks of them with joy? And the, the short answer is because God is at work. Now write that down if you're taking notes. God is at work. A church that will get you fired up is when you know that you know that you know that God is at work in that church. And he thanks God. He's like, I thank God because you're doing so phenomenal. I give God credit. And I thank God because he's begun a good work in you. And he's going to bring it to completion. I thank God. God is at work in you. God is at work in your church. And listen, if you can know, no matter what, no matter what's going on in society, no matter how bad the economy gets, no matter how, and the politics will get even worse as we get further into election season, no matter how bad things are going, you can be pumped up if you know that God is at work in your life and in your church. Now the question becomes, well, if, if a church that's worthy of my joy and affection and participation and, and a church that's worthy of what that gets me fired up is about God being at work. How do I know that God is at work? What are the signs that God is at work? What is the manifestation that God is at work? And of course, you all know there's different answers to that question because different people disagree on what are the signs that God's at work in a church. Right? There are some churches that you go in there and those people, there are some people who are like, if the Holy Ghost is not rolling and you're not speaking in tongues, God is not at work in you. And they can walk in across point and as soon as they see that that's kind of not happening in the church, they'll turn right back around, they'll walk out and they'll shake the dust from their feet and they'll say, God's not at work at that church. Now, there are other people, they think God's at work in some kind of intellectual doctrine, kind of, you know, refinement. We're crossing all our T's. We're dotting all the I's on the word Calvin. And here we come. And if you don't get the doctrine and the confession right, then God is not at work because you're not intellectually, rationally, theologically. You know, you can't sit in an armchair with me, smoke a cigar, and have a proverbial bourbon in your hand and talk theology with me for an hour. God's not at work at your church. I mean, what, how do we know when God's at work? And Paul tells this church in Philippi how he knows that God's at work. He gives us the signs that we can look for. He gives us the things that we should look for to say, God's at work. I see that. And because I see that, God's at work. Now listen, there's two things I want to share with you that prove or show or demonstrate that God's at work in any church. Note, I don't have three points this week. It's because I'm a little sick. So I'm abbreviate. No, not really. Anyways, two points. I'm just not funny today, guys. I don't know what to tell you. If you're a visitor, I'm jacked up. Yeah, exactly. I'm sick. You know, when you're sick, you're not as funny. Anyways, uh, there's two things that you look for that we can see from this, uh, this letter, this Thanksgiving, and this portion of Philippians. The first thing is very simple. When a church is reaching out with the gospel of Jesus, 
God is at work. When a church is reaching out and people in the church are fired up about reaching out to a lost world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, God is at work. You see this in two main phrases. He says in verse, uh, in verse 5, because of your partnership, everybody say partnership, partnership in the gospel. And then you see it also when he says in verse 7, you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. That word for partnership comes from the Greek word koinonia, which means just fellowship. We have a deep fellowship. We have something in common together. We are doing life together, but it's a partnership because we're doing life in community for a reason. And the reason is the gospel. Paul was in a Roman prison. He was in prison, and the church in Philippi had sent Epaphroditus, who was a leader in the church of Philippi, to go from Philippi to Rome, took money to Paul, took encouragement to Paul, and said, listen, we're partners. We are in friendship. We support you financially, spiritually, practically, Paul. We are in partnership with you. And and the reason why we're in partnership with you is because we want more people, not less people, to know about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And when a church is reaching out and it sees the gospel for what it is. Now, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? In fact, somebody just yell it out. What's the meaning of the word gospel? Good news. All right, good news. Now, good news, it, you know what? It's a proclaiming word. Inside of the word, you're probably wondering why I'm holding, it's, this is coming. This is going to be special. But anyways, gospel within that word is is the idea of proclaiming something. It's a proclamation of good news. A herald would go to Roman villages and would declare or proclaim good news to people. And so the gospel, in a Christian sense, is the proclamation of God's good news. It is the declaration that God has intervened for people, saved them from their sins through Jesus' death and resurrection, that he has deconstructed death on the cross, reconstructed new life for sinners so that they can be saved. So here's the idea of good news. And it's not a perfect illustration, but it'll work for today. Good news is somebody is lost at sea. They're drowning in a tempest and a storm in the middle of the ocean with no hope for survival. Now, technically, theologically, they're spiritually dead, but we'll deal with that on another, on another day. But they are drowning. There's no hope for survival. And suddenly, out of nowhere, they hear a voice saying, Hey! And as they are drowning, as they hear this voice, Hey, I'm here to save you in the middle of your death. And that voice then gives the way of being saved to that person in the middle of the ocean. And the gospel is the proclamation there's a way to be saved. There's a way to come out of death. There's a way to be saved from your tempest, from your tyranny, from your bondage, from your sin, from your temptations. There, God has intervened on behalf of lost people and there it is. And the proclamation is grab the raft, grab this message, grab Jesus Christ and be saved. See, it's a, it's, it's a proclamation. 
You say, well, what's that really look like? I mean, what's it look like when different people are saved because of the gospel? Well, go to Acts uh, chapter 16 with me real quick. This is when God, you know God is at work in a church when people are fired up about people getting saved and baptized. And then you really know God's at work when those people are getting saved and getting baptized. God's at work when people are delivered from their sin and and they come into a knowledge of God. Now, in Acts chapter 16, 10 years before the book of Philippians was written, Paul planted the church in Philippi. And we have an account of how this church got started. And what I want you to look at is I want you to look at Acts chapter 16. And let's start with verse 14. They go in and uh, they're going into Philippi, the city of Philippi. And here's the first convert in the church of Philippi. Starting in verse 14. He says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia... From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Now, this was a spiritually sensitive woman, but she didn't have spiritual life in Christ. So Paul shares with her Christ. And verse 15, after she was baptized, uh, her household as well. uh, She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here we have a house church that gets started because of this businesswoman who obviously has means and has money and says, hey, come over to my pad. It's larger than the usual house and we'll have church over there at my house. Now, keep going and look at the second person who becomes a part of this church, or most people think she becomes a part of the church. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl. Everybody say slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune teller. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Um, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, love that, turned and By the way, it is biblical for a pastor every now and then to get annoyed. Amen? If it's good enough for the Apostle Paul, then pastors can get annoyed. Life groups can get annoyed. Life group leaders can get annoyed. And we can get annoyed every now and then in a godly, righteous way. I just wanted to throw that out there. Anyways, Paul gets annoyed with this. Turn and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Now, here the first convert was Lydia, a businesswoman. She's got her life together, man. She's, she's got it going on. She's selling purple, but she's seeking after God because it doesn't bring fulfillment. She's still empty, even in the midst of all of her stuff. She has an emptiness and, and kind of the low growl of emptiness. But then the second person is a slave girl demon-possessed girl, the girl that you don't want your daughters hanging out with because she's demon-possessed, she's a fortune-teller, and Paul 
Paul, in the name of Jesus, takes the demon out of her, and then she gets delivered from her spiritual oppression. And most scholars agree she probably came to this same church. I mean, we're jumping. I can't say that. You say, well, maybe she didn't go. Well, then the third person who comes to Jesus, who gets rescued because of the proclamation of the gospel, is who? The the jailer. Now, look at this. Slave girl, the businesswoman, and then the Roman jailer. Paul and Silas are in jail in Philippi, and there's an earthquake. Verse 27 in chapter 16, when the jailer awoke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all of his family. Could you be any more different than the businesswoman or the slave girl? Now you got a Roman jailer who's suicidal. You got a suicidal guy who comes to Jesus, joins this church, gets baptized. This is the church in Philippi. And they're all coming together. And it is like we talked about last week. It's like Ron Paul, Rick Perry, and, and, and President Obama worshiping at the same church, learning about Jesus together. It's crazy. You say, why does Acts emphasize that? And why does Paul get so fired up about their partnership in the gospel? Because this is what the church is about. It's about finding the suicidal person and witnessing to them and seeing them delivered. It's about finding demon-possessed, jacked-up, spiritually enslaved girls and finding them and witnessing to them. It's about business people, men and women, coming and learning and hearing the gospel. It's about them being saved. And, and you know God's at work in a, in a church when our heart is to see people delivered from suicide, delivered from materialism, delivered from demon possession. And I know it will, it will shock you to know this because we are the church capital of the world, especially around in Morton. There are demon-possessed people in Morton, I assure you. There are business people who are empty and they got the biggest houses that you always drive by and you say, look at that place. And I remember, I'll never forget my church that I had before. I had a new membership class and I met this guy, young guy. He was probably the funniest guy I ever met. Seemed like the happiest soul on the face of the earth. His wife had just had his first son. Every, he was the life of the party, class clown. He came into this new membership class that was ordinarily pretty boring, and he made it fun. A month later, I was doing his funeral because he committed suicide, and nobody saw it coming. Nobody. Maybe nobody knew him well enough. Now, loved ones, listen. All these churches around here, and there's a bunch of Christians going to church, but they have no heart. Listen to me. No heart for the lost. 
And churches are closed off to loss in all kinds of nonverbal ways. You can't come here because you're not good enough. You live in Morton and you don't edge your yard perfectly. So, you know, we don't have your kind around here. And Democrats, huh, uh, huh, uh, get a rope. You know. Sorry, that was an Oklahoma illustration. Anyways. No, no, no. God's at work when our hearts cry out to people, reach out, get to know people, get to know the guy who doesn't seem suicidal or the business person who's just, who's just overdosing on emptiness and stuff. And we're throwing the raft out there. And when Paul says, go back to Philippians 1, <laughs> Paul says, I'm so fired up about you, man. I just pray with joy because you are, he says, partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Now, take this, see. Most churches, they see the proclamation of the gospel. They see the mission of the gospel. And they go, well, that's the professional's job to be out there in that tempest. Hope it works out for you, Pastor Josh. I'm out. You know what I mean? Let me know when there's a men's ministry or let me know when there's a financial seminar. I'll I'll come to that. But as far as the whole missionary thing, we'll leave that to Luke and Tiffany in Africa. We'll leave that to Pastor Josh because he went to seminary. Well, that's your job. I'm out. I hope the worship's good this week and I hope the preaching's funny because I'm out. When Paul says... When Paul says, you're partakers with me, he's saying, I'm an extension of you, and we're in this thing together. And the picture that we have with this word partakers of grace in the defense and in the gospel of Jesus Christ is simply this right here. By the way, This would not be possible without the Bass Pro Shop in East Peoria. Amen? I love that place. Actually, I sent Catherine to go get it. But anyway, she did a good job. But not possible, salvation not possible without Bass Pro Shop. Are we all on the same page? Are we cool? All right, that was heresy. You should charge the platform. All right. Now listen, this is what he's talking about. Right? We're all in this together. And we're all on this line right here. And we're all bound together like these two cords. And everybody needs to be on the line. You need to put your life on the line in some way. Everybody has a job. Everybody's got a place on this line. This is is the vision of our church. Not that one person would be a missionary or one person would be the superstar pastor or, or one group would be the rock star group, but that we would all become ministers and missionaries doing our part. Now, not doing more than we're supposed to do. And it's not my job to do your job. Amen? Some of you type A personalities, you are jumping on this and you're like, I feel so guilty. I've got to do 10 more things in the church. No, 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 no. Please, save us all. Don't think like that. You're only responsible for your job on this line. Somewhere on the line of the ministry of the gospel and reaching out to people, it might be just the neighbor across the street that you've been talking to kind of casually and you've developed rapport and it's time to share and invite them to church or share your faith with them. 
or a coworker, but you've got to get on this line and then you've got to pull your weight. And you know what Paul's saying to, to these Christians in Philippi? You're pulling your weight, man. You're, you're doing your part. We're in this together. I'm in Rome. You're in Philippi. You're sending me financial support. And we are all in fellowship of seeing people like Lydia, seeing people like the slave girl, seeing people like the Roman jailer come. Now, here's what happens to a church. If a church doesn't have everybody on the line and there's only a few people on this line pulling, those few people get tired because they're trying to do too much. And we're like, oh, I wish. Do you know that the American church is. I don't know what the percentage is, but it's like something like 5% of the people do all the work in an American church. Is that crazy talk? I'm not going to be able to make all the hospital calls. Did you know that? And I'm not going to be able to counsel everybody. And I can't shepherd and pastor everybody. There's other pastors here. There's other ministers here. There's life group leaders here. There's future homes that need to open up for hospitality. It's not our job. It's not a committee's job to get meals to pregnant women who are having babies or people who are sick. It's your job, some of you. We have to be a community, and we're all on the line. And as we all get on the line and we care about lost people, we're going to see more people being saved. God is at work in that. And a heart for that. We are partakers of this ministry. We are reaching out. Now, here's the second thing. You say, how do I know God's at work in a church? Well, it's a reaching out church. It's an outreach church. It's evangelistic. But it's also a growing up church. And there's lots of churches that reach out, but they never grow up. Amen? Amen. Man, they are pulling people. They are just out there. They are, in fact, they're really good at reaching out, man. They can reach all kinds. There are mega churches out there, and they're kicking beach balls and drinking Mountain Dew in their services and smoke and mirrors and lights, and they're pulling people up. And then the people get up on, into these big mega churches that are so fancy, and they get there, and they're like, well, what do we do now? And they never grow up. And watch what Paul says. Look at his prayer for this church. He prays. That God would work in them so that they would continue to mature. Look at verse 9. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see that? He's saying, I'm praying that you would continue to grow in love. Now, here's what he's been saying to him. He's been saying, you are a great church. You're a good church. You're a good church. And the reason why you're a good church is because you have a partnership in the gospel. You believe in the gospel. The work that God has done in you in salvation, he's going to complete that work. You are a good church. But you know that you know that you know that good can sometimes become the enemy of great. Jim Collins wrote a book about business leadership, and it was called Good to Great. And he talked about how good is the enemy of great in the American education system and the American business because when you realize, you know, we're pretty good. 
We're a good church. I mean, there's no division here at Cross Point. We preach the Bible. We pray. We love. We have a great little statement up here. We help people discover and develop a lifelong relationship with Jesus Christ. We've got a pretty nice look at that graphic. It's all about Jesus. I mean, we're pretty good. We're pretty good. And you know what happens in our heart. We go, when we say, it's pretty good, we say, it's good enough. good can become the enemy of great. And Paul says, you know what I'm praying for you? I'm praying that you as a church will never settle, that you will continue to mature and grow in the love of Christ, that you will will never stop moving and maturing, that you'll never stop growing in the reality that it's all about Jesus, that you'll never stop, that even if you've heard every type of sermon that's ever been delivered, you're still willing to hear another sermon. You're still willing to hear uh, uh, more of what God's saying to you, that you will grow more and more in love. And a church where God is at work is a church that's continuing to grow up, not just reach out, but grow up. Grow up in love. And not only love, but that that love would be balanced and matured through knowledge. See that? Look at verse 9. How do I, how do I mature? Well, you, you mature, you grow up in Christ in his love. And that love is informed with two things. Knowledge, which is knowledge about God. That's what that word means. You're growing in your knowledge about God, his attributes, his excellencies, his... In all of his uh, manifold, infinite realities, you're growing in your understanding of God. And then all discernment, discernment is the ability to make good decisions in a vast array of options in your daily life. Because, you listen, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about everything you deal with every single day. I mean, when my girls were born into this world... Every single time. I've got four girls. Every time they were born, I looked for the owner's manual, and it never came with them, right? You know this as a parent. You've got to figure stuff out on a daily basis, and some stuff you don't see coming. One of my daughters came home from school a couple of years ago. She was like in first grade. She comes home from school, and she's sitting in the public school system too, by the way, right, which is terrifying. And she comes home from first grade, and she says, Daddy, we learned about politics today. And I went, oh, boy. And I was like, what did they teach you about politics? And she said, there's elephants, and there's donkeys. (laughs) And I was like, and? And she said, well, the elephants like guns. But the donkeys don't. (laughs) She said the elephants hate taxes. But the donkeys like taxes. The elephants don't like the poor. The donkeys do. And then she looks at me and she says, which are you? And I was like, well, it depends on who you talk to. But anyways, <laughs> right? I mean, what do you... No, seriously, though. I mean, that's, that's a silly illustration. This stuff happens every day as a parent. 
And you're trying to figure out little things like how do I teach my kids and when do I teach them about, you know, sex and politics and money and, and you're trying to pick the right time. And the Bible doesn't say, you know, at exactly four and a half years old, outline your political positions to your child. It takes discernment. And all of life is about discernment, the ability, the natural giftedness and genius to be able to make the right choices in a vast array of options and do it in a God, godly way, in a biblical way as far as principles are concerned, but in an instant. And when people in a church are growing up in love and their ability to make these daily decisions, very naturally, God's at work, see? And it, and it comes through knowledge and and discernment. It comes through practicing our faith every single day, thinking through it, being thoughtful and reflective. And a church that helps you to be reflective, and a church that helps you to know more about God through biblical teaching, for example. And as you begin to put it into daily practice, you'll grow in that discernment ability. And you'll know how to handle the elephant-donkey conversation, or the birds and the bees conversation, or the car. Which car should I buy? The Acura, or should I downgrade to a Honda? You know what I mean? No, no, oh, fuck. If you have a Honda, I love them, but I did not. You see, we have to grow and mature. You see that? And, and, and there's three great results of growing in love and maturing in Him. Three great results outlined here in chapters 10 and 11. Number one, you will be able to approve what is excellent. I would just write in your notes like proportion. You get the proportions right. When you're informed by knowledge of God and you're growing in discernment, you're going to begin to get things in their correct proportion. You know what happened to me. It wasn't like we were stupid before we knew God. It wasn't like we were dumb before we came to Jesus. You know what our biggest problem is in life as believers and unbelievers? My biggest problem in life to this day is blowing things out of proportion, taking a small thing and making it this big, dramatic problem. You know what I mean? A little thing that she said, you know, can just get me thinking all day about that. Or a little problem that I had at work this week can just like totally dominate my whole soul for a month. Or... I have a problem making big things really little and not focusing on urgent things like time with the Lord. Like I need quiet time and I need prayer time and I need, I need accountab accountability time. I call a pastor every week on the telephone to talk to him about ministry and life just so I'm availing myself to accountability. But do you know I haven't called him for the last three weeks because I've gotten out of the habit and I've made that big important thing in my life a small thing because I've got all these important things to do and I need to call him this week. You see, you got to be able to approve what's excellent. And as you're maturing, you'll be able to approve what's excellent. You'll get things in their correct proportion. You'll know what's really important. And in knowing what's really important comes peace. I mean, contentment. The, the ability to push yourself back early from the table and say, I have enough today. Contentment. 
And that comes from being able to approve what is excellent. So that you may approve what is excellent. Here's the second thing uh, that comes from growing and maturing in love, knowledge, and discernment. The second result is that you'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The day of Christ is the day of judgment. The Bible uses the day of Christ interchangeably with such phrases as the day of the Lord and the day of Yahweh is the Old Testament phrase. And that's the day when, when, when Jesus, because it's all about him, he's going to bring everything together and, and he's going to, to judge everything out of the light of his righteousness and holiness. And the Bible even says, even as believers, our works, our ministry, what we did with our talents, to whom much is expected, or to, oh, I jacked it. To whom much is given, much is expected. And Jesus said, you, you should be ready for that day. You, you, I want to know that you invested what I gave to you and that you multiplied it in, in your talents and in your gifts and what you've been given. And that day of Christ will be a major revelation of who we really are. And a church should be growing and maturing to the point to where, in the picture of that, that idea of pure and blameless on the day of Christ, the picture is like a sheet, right? You take a sheet, a bed sheet, all right? Think bed sheet. And, and you take that bed sheet and you put it in a corner and you look at it scrumpled up. Well, you can't tell if it's clean or dirty, right? Uh, you can't tell if, 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 if it's clean or dirty. But the way you can tell if a sheet is clean or dirty is you take it in and you stretch it out in the sunlight and you put it up against the sun and it becomes transparent and that sun reveals every blemish, every spot, every imperfection. And a church should be encouraging you to grow to the point to where on the day of Christ, the day of the sun... When our life is just spread out in, in His infinite, glorious majesty and righteousness and it shines through us. There's no spots. We're blameless. We're pure. See, we're maturing. That's what Paul is praying. I, I pray that God will give you the grace to, to be pure and blameless for that day of judgment. A church that God's at work, you know, a church understands that that day is coming. Surely we've not become so modern and so influenced by culture to believe that God no longer is the judge of the world and that he's not coming. Surely you have not been tricked. And we've been deceived into thinking that's some kind of religious primitive idea. It's coming. And God's at work when he makes his people aware of it. Be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Here's the final thing. You're not only... You got proportions correct. You got pure. You're growing in purity, but you're growing in fruitfulness, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see that there's a righteousness. There's there's works that are the result of the grace of Jesus Christ. And we talked about this the other week, but I think it's so important. I'll just repeat it really quick. There's bad, good works. There's bad righteousness. There is such a thing as bad morality or virtue. And then there's good, good works. There's the kind that are honoring to God, that bring glory and praise to God. And the good, good works are the result of a relationship and the gospel of grace and experiencing Christ. It's through Jesus that this fruit of righteousness is produced. 
But the bad kind of righteousness or the bad kind of good works is under compulsion, out of guilt, self-forced, you know, grit my teeth, performance religion, I'm going to be godly today. And it's not honoring to God. You know, it's, it's kind of like how I've been, tra- <laughs> you know, every, I have to be real careful with my kids because we pray every night. And so sometimes, you know, Sherry and I will be like, it's time for you to pray now. And we go, we go around a circle and they pray. And sometimes there's one who's like, well, I don't think I want to pray tonight. And we're like, pray, pray to God right now. <laughs> Do it. You know, <laughs> and it's like, it's like, that's not good. That is not good. God is not honored by me going, you better pray to God or else. And then she going, dear Lord, please don't send me to hell. You know, I mean, when, when a maturing church understands the gospel of grace, a maturing church is robust in its idea of grace that it not only saves us and makes us right with God, but grace changes our hearts. It comes on the inside. It produces not works, but fruit. My transformation is out of this natural process of Christ in me, Christ through me. It's all about Jesus, see? It was never about you and me. (laughs) It was never about we were one day going to be impressive. It was never about, you know, there's going to be like some really holy people in the church and some unholy people in the church. You know, Protestants have become more Catholic than they think they have by making this kind of sainthood in the church. Well, that person's really godly because I know for a fact that she gets down on her knees at 4.30 in the morning and there's nothing there on her jeans. You know what I mean? It's like, dude, it's all about Jesus. It's about him in us, through us. I have been crucified with Christ. It's... No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. It's all about the exchange, not a me change. That's what he's talking about. That's a maturing church. That's a church that's growing up. And that's a church of balance. And that's a church that glorifies God. See where he says there, to the glory and the praise of God. There's, there's a quality life. You know, I mean, we, we've redefined what a quality life is, haven't we? We said, well, quality life, a quality life is a life where you live a long time. A quality life is a life where you, you get to retire somewhere really nice. A quality life is kids. A quality life is a bunch of If it's a bunch of kids, I'm in. But anyways. But you know, Paul and the Bible redefines for us, and I think it's so helpful to give us peace in our culture. He defines a quality life simply as the life that glorifies and praises God. Openly acknowledging the presence of God in our life. That is a quality life. And I will tell you for a fact, I'll tell you very dramatically, I don't, I, I'm not afraid of using drama to, to drive home a point. But when I buried my grandfather, he was 94 years old. He was a fantastic man. 
He was a patriarch in our family. Buried him about three years ago. A month later, in fact, no, a week later, as soon as I got back from doing that funeral, on my desk was a note from a family whom I had just met in a new membership class, and their two-year-old son had passed away the night before. Unexpectedly, suddenly. I stood at that cemetery with a, a casket that was no longer than that. You can imagine. And I saw that daddy stand up there and look at his family, none of which were Christians. And he threw out that thing. And he said, this boy is not dead. And Jesus died and rose on the third day. And he bore witness to his faith. And that little boy is still, is still impacting people three years later. That's a quality life. That's a full life. It's not about length of years. It's not about amount of stuff. It's about does your life count for God? And that's, that's what he's saying. That's a maturing church. A church that's growing up is a bunch of people who are like, dude, to live as Christ, to die as gain. It doesn't matter. I exist for him. If he wants to take me tomorrow and all of my days from, from the day I was born to yesterday or last week, and that's all he wants me to have, and it honors and glorifies him. There are some people who don't live very long, and they bring more glory and have more full life than those who live a long time. Do you glorify God? Do you bring praise and honor to God? A church where he is at work will grow and mature in that, but a church will also reach out. Now, I'm going to close up with this. Here's the picture. A church where God's at work, boom, casting out the gospel to a lost world all the time in a million different ways, trying to let people know the announcement. God is in The gospel is not good advice. The gospel is good news. Hey, world, God has intervened for you. You can be saved through Jesus, see? And we're all doing our part. We're on the line. We're pulling our weight. But as we grow up and mature, our grip will get stronger on this. We'll be better witnesses. When we're pulling together, see, it'll be a tighter grip for each of us as we're growing up. Because, obviously, when you grow up, you get stronger. You get stronger. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word and... uh, I know it does not return void to us and even those parts that are imperfectly communicated or they're covered by your grace and your righteousness and you can take weak things and make them strong in our life and I pray you would do that and God, I pray that you would be at work in our church. I feel that you are. You're already at work at Cross Point. You're at work in us with a desire to reach people who have not been reached. Maybe also to help de-churched or disillusioned Christians as well come to a healthy place to reach them with this gospel, this proclamation, this announcement. I'm glad, God, you're not about really good advice. You're about good news. There's so much good advice out there, and yet 
what good is it, Lord, if it, if it can't change our hearts and our minds and open our blind eyes? God, I, I pray also that we would be a maturing church, myself included, that we would grow up, continue to grow up, and continue to mature in our, in our understanding of the gospel and grace and truth, and, 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 and that we would never stop, that good would not become the enemy of great for us as, as followers of Jesus or as a church, that we would never settle, but our love would grow more and more. Pour that love out into our hearts. And I want to talk to you. Um, you are not spectators. You are participators in this moment of the word. And, and for some of you, maybe you are not a believer. And let me cast out to you a safety tube. Let me cast out to you the safety and the salvation of Jesus. And say he died for you and he rose on the third day. And you can prove that if you're able to believe. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you crossed the line of faith? Is it time for you to get out of the tempest, to get out of the storm, to get out of the bondage of your sin? Turn to him. That's why he came into this world is for you. Believe in him. Say to him, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Save me from my sin and do it now. Use whatever words it takes, but do it now, and then let us know. You can come down and pray with me if you want, but let us know. And then if you're a believer, who are you called to reach? What part of the line are you to be on? Are you doing your part? Are you pulling your weight? And some of you, you're pulling too much weight, and you need to go get somebody to help you out on your line. Let's be sensitive to what God's calling us to do. Not legalistically, but just under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. What are we supposed to do? Where are you a partner? As you pray about those things, as we continue to worship, once a month we take up an offering for um, a benevolent offering, mostly for the food pantry, but for other benevolent things we do for the community. 100% of this offering goes into the community, does nothing for our buildings or our staff or anything like that. It goes totally back into the community. And so um, we do that once a month, and this is our time, so let's worship him in that. And for those of you who are going to give to that, get ready for that. And those of you who are not, just worship and enjoy the Lord this morning and, and ask him to show you where to reach out and to show you how to grow up in his grace. Amen.